Ahoy there! Welcome aboard Superstitions, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Alastair Murden. On this show, we use short stories to explore bizarre beliefs that we take for granted in our day-to-day -day lives. Every culture has them, and our goal is to ascertain why. Today's superstition comes not from a particular country, but from the open sea. Sailors have a good reason to practice peculiar rituals in the name of safe passage. From sudden storms to rogue waves to icebergs, the sea is a dangerous place to work. Many old sea dogs believe that human behavior can affect these waters, and even the most innocuous pastimes can enrage them. Imagine you've spent hours splicing lines and hauling supplies. You might find yourself looking for something to liven up the drudgery, so you whistle a happy tune. But if you know what's good for you, you'll clam up toot sweet. To many sailors, whistling can be dangerous. If you're not careful, you'll find yourself whistling up a storm. So hoist the mainsail, weigh the anchor, and keep your lips sealed. Because the sea is a fickle mistress, and she does not like to be challenged. You can find episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Coming up, we set sail aboard the doomed HMS Lazarus. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Captain's Log, December 2nd, 1875. The Lazarus shipped out from the Azores at 8 in the morning, taking on board fresh water and supplies. Expected to reach Trinidad by January 11th with strong winds and good fortune, if that insubordinate bosun Covey doesn't scupper us before then. Captain Roy stared at the logbook with trepidation. Today was December 2nd, 1975, 100 years to the day since this entry was written. Roy had read the time-worn volume dozens of times, but even so, this line still unsettled him. Before Roy could give it any more thought, a piercing whistle sounded from above. It was time for Roy to head up and oversee his crew. Just like the ship had 100 years before, they were about to leave the Azores. The story of Royal Navy Captain Leonard Briggs and his infamous ship, the HMS Lazarus, had fascinated Roy since childhood. Briggs was a hard man, with no patience for disobedience from his crew. Many historians thought he was the one who drove the Lazarus to its doom. He'd shipped off from Liverpool in December 1875 with a hold full of supplies meant for Tahiti. Two months later, the Lazarus was discovered drifting near Bermuda. The ship was a wreck, mainsail tattered, mast broken, hull riding low in the water. Not a soul remained on board. The Navy claimed Captain Briggs sailed right into a storm, losing his crew and his life in the process. But ever since he first learned the story, Roy always believed something else must have happened. 
there was no storm indicated in Captain Briggs' logbook and none reported by other ships in the area. Briggs famously wrote about a troublesome crew member, John Covey, who Roy suspected may have truly caused the ship's doom. Now, 100 years later, Roy hoped to finally prove Captain Briggs' innocence. He would sail that final route exactly the way the old captain had, aboard the faithfully restored HMS Lazarus. Under his watch, no one would sabotage the journey this time. Even in the early morning, the HMS Lazarus was a hive of activity. The small crew of 15 sailors scuttled across the deck, busy as bees. Most of them were history enthusiasts or sailors in need of a quick buck. At the bow, a team of men secured a metal lifeboat. Too modern for Roy's retro voyage, but the insurance company did not care for his old-fashioned tastes. Another short blast sounded from the bosun's whistle, and the crew dropped their tasks and headed for the mainmast. Roy wanted to sail the Lazarus the same way Briggs had, so he taught the crew the whistle commands the Royal Navy used back then. But some part of him already felt that was a mistake. Mickey, the bosun, stood below the mainmast, long grey ponytail and Hawaiian shirt flapping in the breeze. He was furious. Who's blowing that blasted whistle? Mickey bellowed at the assembled crew. They grunted in confusion. Mickey pulled out a small silver whistle attached to a chain around his throat and gave a short blast. Mickey continued. This is the only whistle that should be heard on this ship. See the difference? The crew looked puzzled. The sound that came from Mickey's whistle was sharper and higher pitched than the one that summoned them to the deck. When Mickey spotted Roy, he made a beeline for the captain. Up close, Roy could see the vein on his right temple pulsing as he launched into a diatribe. Captain, these idiots are going to get someone killed. We agreed we're doing things the old-fashioned way. Well, somebody else whistled the command for muster, not me. A young man with shaggy blonde hair gave a low whistle, and Mickey flinched. Chill out, man, he said. The little tune isn't going to hurt anybody. The crew snickered in agreement. Roy rounded on him. McGregor, this is my ship, and on my ship, you listen to orders. McGregor glared at Roy. Sorry, Captain, but don't you think this whole experiment's a little silly? We have radios. You don't need to rely on some archaic system just because whistles get you excited. Some of us aren't masochists. Roy shook his head. McGregor was a good sailor, but the young man just didn't get it. McGregor, if I find out you're messing with how things run on my ship... A loud, strange groaning interrupted Mickey's tirade. Roy's eyes went straight to the mast. If there was something wrong with it, they were dead in the water. Suddenly, a rope snapped behind him. Roy turned to see something big and metal hurtling towards his head. He didn't have time to think, he just ducked, flattening himself to the deck. He felt the rush of air as the object swung over him. It was the lifeboat. Somehow, it had broken free of the ties that held it to the deck. After two swings, the last few cables snapped and the lifeboat crashed to the deck. Roy jumped to his feet. For a moment, he thought he heard faint, eerie whistling carried on the ocean breeze. But it was drowned out by a more immediate sound, a whimper of pain. 
Nearby, Mickey heaved the metal lifeboat off to the side. One of the crew, a teenage boy from the local university, lay moaning on the deck. His left leg was a mangled, bloody pulp. Panic rose like bile at the back of Roy's throat. This was supposed to be a fun experiment. Nobody was supposed to get hurt. Who secured that lifeboat? He said, his voice strangled. McGregor answered, We were in the middle of doing it when the whistle called muster. Mickey looked pointedly at Roy as he bent down over the injured boy. Roy knew exactly what he was going to say. No more whistles. Roy ordered the crew to secure the lifeboat and clear the deck. The boy would have to stay behind. The cabin felt suffocating to Roy after the sea breeze of the open deck. His nerves were shot. From now on, there would be no radios, no whistling or humming. Even tapping on board would get everyone half rations. It was a bit tyrannical, but maybe putting the fear of God into the crew would be good for them. After all, had they listened in the first place, that boy would still be on board. Roy sat and closed his eyes, massaging his temple with one hand. They just had an accident. It was nothing like whatever disaster befell old Captain Briggs. Opening his eyes, Roy caught sight of the logbook lying on the desk. He leaned forward and flipped ahead to the next day. Captain's Log, December 3rd, 1875. Disaster yesterday. One man crippled after the expedition boat rested free from its moorings. Not sure how, but I know that blasted bosun Covey is responsible. Need to find a way to take care of the problem. Roy stared at the page, a shiver of fear playing along his spine. The very same accident happened 100 years before. Well, no, not quite. In this case, the men had been distracted. They'd even admitted they abandoned the task midway to report for muster. There was no one like this bosun Covey purposefully causing problems. A knock came at the door to the cabin. The door creaked open and there stood Mickey. I found something, he said. Can I come in? Mickey stepped into the cabin and spoke. I think someone's trying to scare the crew. At Roy's confusion, Mickey explained. It was the whistling. An old superstition among sailors held that whistling was bad luck. They say if you're not careful, it can summon a storm. Roy started to laugh but stopped when he clocked Mickey's expression. The man was dead serious. He said, That's not all. I looked over the rigging for that lifeboat once the crew cleared off. He dropped a length of rope into Roy's hands. The fibers had all broken at the same length. No, not broken. The rope had been cut. Roy looked up in alarm, meeting Mickey's eye. The bosun nodded in agreement. Captain, he said, we've got a saboteur aboard. Captain's Log, December 10th, 1875. A week out from the Azores and already morale is dismally low. Covey causing dissent among the men. If this goes on, I fear a mutiny. Roy found himself acting more erratically in the days after the saboteur unmoored the lifeboat. He felt angry all the time. Yesterday, he'd snapped at one of the student volunteers when he didn't coil a rope properly. He'd reduced the boy to tears. 
Roy and Mickey had questioned the other crew members ad nauseum about the rope, but everyone claimed ignorance. Under Roy, friendly questioning quickly turned to hours-long interrogations. Roy knew he was acting like a tyrant, but he couldn't stop it. In fact, he found himself enjoying it. And he knew nothing would bring him more bliss than finally seeing the saboteur brought to justice. He thought he had his chance a week out from the Azores. He bolted upright in bed, startled awake by the eerie bosun's whistle. Mickey had made a great show of locking up his whistle to avoid any more confusion on the deck. Whoever had awakened Roy that night had to be the saboteur. Roy dashed up to the deck, still in his pajamas. He looked left and right, searching for the troublemaker in the moonlight. At first, all seemed quiet. Nothing but shadows and gently rippling sails. Then, he saw it. A shadow stood at the very edge of the ship's bow, facing out towards the sea. And in its hand, something silver glittered. Roy dropped to his hands and knees and crept towards the figure. His heartbeat pounded in his ears. The figure stood stock still. Listening, Roy thought. He's listening for me. It was a man, all right, but he could not say which of the crew it was. There was only one way to find out. With a roar, Roy launched himself at the shadow. He wrapped his arms around the man's waist and tackled him to the deck. The man gave a groan of surprise, twisted away from Roy, and went straight over the side. Coming up, Captain Roy discovers history can repeat itself. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hakeman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Roy could see his dreams slipping away into the dark waters of the Atlantic. Someone was sabotaging the Lazarus, his ship. Just when he had the mutinous man in hand, he had gone over the edge. Roy hadn't intended to push him, but it was the only way to salvage this voyage. Hearing shouts, the crew ran up on deck to find their captain hunched over the bow. Beneath him, hanging onto the railing by one hand, was a terrified McGregor. He's the saboteur! Roy shouted when he spotted Mickey. He's got the whistle on him right now! Even as the crew pulled McGregor back aboard, Roy was already demanding he hand it over. 
There's no escaping. I saw you with it. McGregor breathed heavily. I ain't got any whistle. I didn't do anything. Roy spotted a silver chain around his neck, grabbed it, and pulled. He held it aloft triumphantly. See? He's got it here. But Roy had spoken too soon. A simple silver locket dangled from the chain. Confused, he opened it, revealing a picture of a young brunette woman. Mickey spoke cautiously. Captain, I think there's been a mistake, he said, taking the locket from Roy. Roy blinked in shock. It couldn't be. He'd heard the whistle. He knew McGregor had to be the saboteur, but somehow he'd hidden it, switched it for a locket. McGregor rose to his feet, glared at Roy, then went below decks. Mickey guided Roy towards his own stateroom. You need some rest, Captain, he said. You're too stressed. You know, if searching for the troublemakers affecting you this way, maybe we ought to think about cutting this trip short. Roy shook his head. We're not going to give up, he said. We're going to make the crossing, no matter what. He let the implication linger unspoken in the air, even if it kills us. The sun rose red and bloody the next morning. According to the instruments Roy brought along, the air should be calm. Even so, Roy could sense that a storm was coming. In many ways, today was the day Roy's entire life had been leading up to. The Azores were eight days behind him, and ahead stretched thousands of miles of open ocean. He'd been following Captain Briggs' fading footsteps in the captain's log of the Lazarus. And 100 years ago today, December 11th, Briggs made his last entry. Captain's Log, December 11th, 1875. As Matthew set down in the New Testament, red sky at morning, sailors take warning. The mate assures me we're well clear of hurricane season, but I have my doubts. I only know if the Lazarus is to survive, a sacrifice must be made. Covey needs to go. The words of a madman. At least, that's what Roy believed when they set out from Liverpool. Three disastrous weeks later, he was starting to see Briggs Point. The men had grown restless. From the quarterdeck, Roy could see them lounging in the shade to avoid the burning morning sun. After the whistle incidents, the camaraderie that united the crew had dissipated. Some, like Roy, believed a dangerous provocateur was aboard. Others thought the problems were managerial in nature. These men thought that maybe it was time for a new captain aboard the Lazarus. If Roy wanted to avoid a mutiny, he needed to find his culprit fast. When Mickey emerged from below decks, Roy gestured for him to follow then retreated to his stateroom. Mickey spoke in a hushed whisper. Captain, I've questioned everyone on board. I've searched every nook and cranny of the ship. I haven't found any more signs of sabotage. I've been thinking, maybe we rushed to judgment too quickly. Perhaps the lifeboat was an accident. Roy snapped his head up. There it was again, that blasted whistle. He knew if he could just catch whoever it was in the act, all this strangeness would be over. He pointed towards the door. Does that sound like an accident to you? 
Someone's messing with us, and when I find them, I'm sending them straight to Davy Jones' locker. Roy burst out on deck again to find that conditions had changed. Dark clouds were now rolling in from the east, nearly blotting out the red morning sun. Most of the crew was already on deck, lashing supplies to the railings and tying the sails down tight. McGregor stepped forward, a bruise blossoming on his face from the night before. Captain, we've been talking. For the good of everyone, you need to step down. Roy looked from face to face. Many of the men averted their eyes, but McGregor did not waver. Captain, something's wrong. You're not well. And at the rate you're going, someone's going to get killed. Roy's eyes flashed at the perceived threat. So it was mutiny then. Traitors! He shouted over the rising wind. Not but mutineers and villains. Once I find which one of you is the ringleader, I'll get rid of him, just like Covey. The men looked at each other, nervous. Mickey cleared his throat and spoke. <clears throat> Cab, who's Covey? Before Roy could answer, the heavens finally broke. Rain lashed at the deck, soaking the men instantly. Mickey shouted commands, directing the crew to secure the last of the supplies. Roy heard the whistle again, this time coming from behind him. He turned, just in time to see the lightning forking down from the sky. The bolt struck the top of the mainsail. The mast splintered and fell to the deck. As the men screamed and raced to get out of the way, Roy charged forward like a man possessed. He didn't care about the storm. He didn't care what happened to the ship. All he knew was he needed to find the whistleblower or die trying. It came again, this time from a dark entryway directly in front of him, the cargo hold. Water sloshed back and forth on the floor, evidence that the hull had sprung a leak. Roy plowed forward, not feeling his boots growing waterlogged. He peered through the gloom of the old ship, searching for any sign of the whistler. There it was again. Roy followed the sound, one hand on the rough hull to keep his balance. After a few steps, he felt something odd in the wall, a straight, uniform groove going against the grain of the wood. He stopped and ran his hands along it. Set in the wood was a small, nearly invisible door. He pressed his ear to the door, and from behind it, he could hear the unmistakable tones of the bosun's whistle. He'd found his culprit, tucked away in a secret hiding place. At that moment, a wave struck the Lazarus, and Roy's world went sideways. Roy clung to the hidden door, trying to keep himself on his feet. Barrels of fresh water escaped from their moorings and rolled across the hold, narrowly missing him. From above, he could hear screams. Roy ignored it all, scratching at the crack until his fingers bled. Finally, he wrenched the door free, revealing a small cubby in the hull. From above, Roy could hear Mickey's voice shouting for him through the storm. Captain, he bellowed, the Lazarus won't survive. We must abandon ship. Roy ignored him and ventured into the cubby, closing the door behind him. The whistler was in his grasp. There was no turning back now. The only thing inside the cubby was a large, old-fashioned barrel, the type Captain Briggs might have used to store supplies. 
When Roy touched the hoops holding it together, they dissolved into a fine red dust. The wood was thick with mold, but seemingly from deep inside the barrel, Roy could hear the tinny notes of the bosun's whistle. He grabbed the lid and pulled. As soon as the lid popped out of place, Roy knew something was very wrong. A salty musk hit him in the back of the throat. Whatever was inside, it had been there for a very long time. Roy pulled apart the rotting planks and the things spilled out onto the floor. At first, Roy thought it was a bundle of old rags. Then he noticed a small black book that had fallen to the side. Written on the cracked leather in golden letters were the words, Property of John R. Covey, Boson, Royal Navy. Again, the ship listed violently to the side. Seawater poured into the cargo hold at an alarming rate. It was already up to Roy's knees. If he spent much longer down here, it would be over his head. But Roy couldn't leave. He had to know. With the horror rising in his chest, he steadied himself and reached for the pile of rags. He drew back the waterlogged fabric and stifled a scream. The clothes were wrapped around bones, slimy and encrusted with barnacles. Though the maggots must have gotten his eyes many years ago, John Covey's blank gaze still held Roy captive. And there, clutched in his right hand, was a small, silver boatswain's whistle. A piece of paper was in John Covey's other hand. Roy unfolded it, realizing it was a page he'd never seen before from Briggs' log, the true final entry. Captain's Log, December 18th, 1875. I did what I thought I needed to. I was so, so wrong. Covey is gone, but not before his whistle could work its magic. Dark clouds approaching. Crew abandoning ship. We will not survive. We should not survive. God forgive me. A life on the sea can be a treacherous one, so it's understandable that sailors are so concerned with luck. Over the centuries, hundreds of superstitions have sprung up to prevent bad luck from afflicting a ship. For instance, the commonly all-male crews avoided bringing women on board. In the Caribbean, sailors made a point of not packing bananas amongst their rations, and renaming a ship could have disastrous consequences. One particularly strange belief was that whistling brought bad luck. More specifically, whistling challenged the wind. If you made it angry, it might blow up into a storm. No sailor, especially in the days before engine-powered ships, wanted to mess with the weather patterns that controlled nearly every element of their voyage. This belief may also have sprung from more practical concerns. In the 1800s, England's Royal Navy used whistles to relay commands aboard a ship. The boatswain, the officer who manages the crew and the deck equipment, gave these orders using a special type of silver whistle. If someone else was whistling aboard, there was a very real concern that it could confuse the crew. If someone whistled the wrong command, mistakes could happen. Mistakes that a fragile wooden vessel could not afford. 
But whether you believe an errant whistle could disrupt a ship's workflow or even drum up a storm, the wariness of these warbling instruments roots back to the same common fear. A ship is a small piece of civilization bobbing in an ocean of chaos. No laws rule the sea, and even today, no man has truly mastered it. In this environment, superstition might just be the most practical choice. For sailors, the choice is easy. Better to be a superstitious old salt than doomed to a watery grave. Thanks again for listening to Superstitions. We will be back on Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until next time, be wary of the things you cannot explain. Superstitions is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Superstitions was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Robert Teamstra and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Brian Petrus. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>